Section 2 of Psychological Warfare This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Brandon Mitchell Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Leinbarger Chapter 1b Historic Examples of Psychological Warfare, Part 2 The Black Propaganda of Genghis Khan Another demonstration of psychological warfare in the past was so effective that its results lingered to this day. It is commonly thought that the greatest conqueror the world has ever seen, Temujin, the Genghis Khan, affected his Mongol conquest with limitless hordes of wild Tartar horsemen who flooded the world by weight of sheer numbers. Recent research shows that the sparsely settled countryside of Inner Asia could not have produced populations heavy enough to overwhelm the densely settled areas of the great Mongol periphery by weight alone. The empire of the Khan was built on bold military inventiveness, the use of highly mobile forces, the full use of intelligence, the coordination of half-global strategy, the application of propaganda in all its forms. The Mongols were fighting the Sung Dynasty in China and the Holy Roman Empire in Prussia 4,000 miles apart when neither of their adversaries knew, in more than rumor, that the other existed. The Mongols used espionage to plan their campaigns and deliberately used rumor and other means to exaggerate accounts of their own huge numbers, stupidity, and ferocity. They did not care what their enemies thought as long as the enemies became frightened. Europeans described light, hard-hitting, numerically inferior cavalry as a numberless horde because Mongol agents whispered such a story in the streets. To this day, most Europeans do not appreciate the lightness of the forces nor the cold intelligence of command with which the Mongols hit them seven centuries ago. Genghis even used spies of the enemy as a means of frightening the enemy. When spies were at hand, he indoctrinated them with rumors concerning his own forces. Let the first European biographer of Genghis tell, in his own now quite words, how Genghis put the bee on Khorzum. And a historian to describe their strength and number makes the spies whom the king of Kharazmi had sent to view them speak thus. They are, say they to the sultan, all complete men, Vigorous and look like wrestlers, they breathe nothing but war and blood, and show so great an impatience to fight that the generals can scarce moderate it, yet though they appear thus fiery, they keep themselves within the bounds of a strict obedient command, and are entirely devoted to their prince, they are contented with any sort of food, and are not curious in the choice of beasts to eat like Muslimen, Mohammedans so that they are subsized without much trouble, and they not only eat swine's flesh, but feed upon wolves, bears, and dogs when they have no other meat, making no distinction between what was lawful to eat and what was forbidden, and the necessity for supporting life takes them all the dislike which the Mohammedans have for many sorts of animals. As to their number, they concluded, Gagas and troops seemed like the grasshoppers, impossible to be numbered. In reality, this prince, making a review of his army, found it to consist of 700,000 men. Enemy espionage can now, as formerly, 
prove useful if the net effect of it is to lower enemy morale. The ruler and people of Khorizm put up a terrific fight, nonetheless, despite their expectation of being attacked by wolf-eating wrestlers without number, but they left the initiative to Genghis's hands and were doomed. However good the Mongols were in strategic and tactical propaganda, they never solved the problem of consolidation propaganda. They did not win the real loyalty of the peoples whom they conquered, unlike the Chinese who replaced conquered populations with their own people or the Mohammedans who converted conquered peoples. The Mongols simply maintained law and order, collected taxes, and sat on top of the world for a few generations. Then their world stirred beneath them, and they were gone. The Blindness of John Milton Moving across the centuries, for an example, it is interesting to note that John Milton, author of Paradise Lost and of other priceless books of the English-speaking world, went blind because he was so busy conducting Oliver Cromwell's psychological warfare that he disregarded the doctor's warning and abused his ailing sight. And the sad thing about it was that it was not very good psychological warfare. Milton fell into the common booby trap of refuting his opponents item by item, thus leaving them the strong affirmative position instead of providing a positive and teachable statement of his own faith. He was Latin secretary to the council in that Commonwealth of England, which was, to its contemporaries in Europe, such a novel, dreadful, and seditious form of government. The English had killed their king by somewhat off-handed legal procedures and had gone under the Cromwellian dictatorship. It was possible for their opponents to attack them from two sides at once. Believers in monarchy could call the English murderous king-killers, a charge as serious in those times as the charge of anarchism or free love in this, believers in order and liberty could call the British slaves of a tyrant. A Frenchman called Claude de Semai, in Latin form, Samisius, wrote a highly critical book about the English, and Milton seems to have lost his temper and his judgment. In his two books against Salmasus, Milton then committed almost every mistake in the whole schedule of psychological warfare. He moved from his own ground of argument over to the enemies. He wrote at excessive length. He indulged in some of the nastiest name-calling to be found in literature and went into considerable detail to describe Salmasus in unattractive terms. He slung mud wherever he could. The books are read today under compulsion by Ph.D. candidates, but no one else is known to find them attractive. It is not possible to find that these books had any lasting influence in their own time. In these texts written by Milton in Latin, but now available in English, army men wearying of the monotonous phraseology of basic military invective can find extensive additions to their vocabulary. Milton turned to disappointment and poetry, the world is the gainer. The vocabulary of 17th century propaganda had a strident tone which is, perhaps unfortunately, getting to be characteristic of the 20th century. The following epithets sound like an American Legion description of communists or a communist description of the Polish Democrats, yet they were applied in a book by a Lutheran to Quakers. The title of the tirade reads, in part, a description of the new Quakers making known the sum of their manifold blasphemous opinions, dangerous practices, 
Godless Crimes, attempts to subvert civil government in the churches and in the community life of the world, together with their idiotic games, their laughable action and behavior, which is enough to make sober Christian persons breathless, and which is like death, and which can display the lazy, stinking cadaver of their fanatical doctrines. In its first few pages, the book accuses the Quakers of obscenity, adultery, civil commotion, conspiracy, blasphemy, subversion, and lunacy. Milton was not out of fashion in applying bad manners to propaganda. It is merely regrettable that he did not transcend the frailties of his time. Other Instances from History Innumerable other instances of propaganda in warfare and diplomacy could be culled out of history. These would not mean much if they were presented as mere storytelling. The cultural factors would have to be figured out, the military situation would need to be appraised in realistic terms, the media available for psychological warfare would have to be charted pretty carefully before the instances would become usable examples. Here are some of the most promising topics. Naval psychological warfare techniques used by the Caribbean pirates to unnerve prospective victims. Cortez's use of horses as psychological disseminators of terror among the Aztecs, along with his exploration of Mexican legends concerning the fair god. The failure of Turkish psychological warfare in the great campaigns of 1683, which left the issue one of purely physical means and cost Turkey the possible hegemony of Central Europe. The propaganda methods of the British East India Company in the conquest of India against the overwhelming Indian numerical superiority. Edmund Taylor mentions these in his Richer by Asia. The preventative psychological warfare system set up by the Tokugawa shoguns after 1636, which bottled up the brains of the Japanese through more rigorous control than has ever been established elsewhere over civilized people. The field psychological warfare of the Machus who conquered China against odds running as much as 400 to 1 against them and who used terror as a means of nullifying Chinese superiority. The propaganda of the European feudal classes against the peasant revolts which identified the peasants with filth, anarchy, murder, and cruelty. The Inquisition considered as a psychological warfare facility of the Spanish Empire the agitational practices of the French revolutionaries, early uses of rockets and balloons for psychological effect, the beginnings of leaflet printing as an adjunct to field operations. Such a list just begins to touch on subjects which can and should be investigated either as staff studies or by civilian historians. Collection of the materials and framing of sound doctrines for psychological warfare are no minor task. The American Revolution in the American Revolution, psychological warfare played a very important role. The Whig campaign of propaganda which led up to colonial defiance of Britain was energetic and expert in character, and the very opening of hostilities was marked by passionate appeals to the civilian population in the form of handbills. The American forces at the Battle of Bunker Hill used one of the earliest versions of frontline combat propaganda. The appeal was as direct as could be wished. Artful use was made of the sharp class distinctions then existing between British officers and enlisted men. Fear was exploited as an aid to persuasion. The language was pointed. 
Even in our own time, the Bunker Hill propaganda leaflet stands as a classic example of how to do good field propaganda. The Americans made extensive use of the press. When the newspaper proprietors veered too far to the loyalist side, they were warned to keep a more patriotic line. If, in the face of counter-threats from the loyalists, the newspaper threatened going out of business altogether, it was warned that suspension of publication would be taken as treason to America. The Whigs, before hostilities, and their successors, the patriots of the war period, showed a keen interest in keeping the press going and in making sure that their side of the story got out and got circulated rapidly. In intimidation and control of the press, they far outdistanced the British, whose papers circulated chiefly within the big cities held as British citadels throughout the war. Political reasoning, economic arguments, allegations concerning the course of the war, and atrocity stories all played a role. George Washington himself, as commander of the Continental Forces, showed a keen interest in war propaganda and in his just, moderate political and military measures provided a policy base from which patriot propagandists could operate. Some wars are profoundly affected by a book written on one side or the other. The American Revolutionary War was one of these. Thomas Paine's Common Sense, issued as a widely sold series of pamphlets, swept American opinion like wildfire. It stated some of the fundamentals of American thinking and put its bold but reasonable revolutionary case in such simple terms that even conservatives in the Patriot group could not resist using it for propaganda purposes. Common Sense has become a classic of American literature, but it has its place in history, too, as the book that won the war. Other pamphleteers, with the redoubtable Sam Adams in the lead, also did well. American experience in the Mexican War was less glorious. The Mexicans waged psychological warfare against us with considerable effect, ending up with traitor American artillerymen dealing out heavy murder to the American troops outside Mexico City. Historians in both countries gloss over the treason and subversion which occurred on each side. In the Civil War, Psychological warfare was practiced by both Lincoln and the Confederacy in establishing propaganda instrumentalities in England and on the continent of Europe. The northern use of Negro troops, which was followed at the end of the war by the Confederate plans for raising Negro troops, did not become the major propaganda issue it might have because of the community of feeling on the two sides, indecision on each side as to the purpose of the war, apart from the basic issue of union or disunion, and the persistence of politics as usual both north and south of the battle line. Boers and Burmese In the latter part of the 19th century, two sets of British wars indicate the effect psychological warfare can play. The British conquered both Burma and the Boers. The Burmese were more numerous, had the larger country, and if they had leadership comparable to the Japanese leadership of the time, could have developed a larger military potential. But Burma was conquered by the British in a final war which went on quietly and ingloriously. No nation came to their aid. They did not even get a chance to surrender. The British simply ended the war in the middle by announcing the end of the Burmese government and by making a one-sided declaration that Burma was annexed to the Empire of India. The political death of Burma occurred on 1 January 1886, but the event has been forgotten. The Boers, on the other hand, made a stir throughout the world. They got in touch with Germans, Irish, Americans, French, Dutch, 
and anybody else who might criticize Britain. They stated their case loudly and often. They waged commando warfare, adding the word commando to international military parlance and sent small units deep into the British rear, setting off a mad uproar and making the world press go crazy with excitement. When they finally gave in, it was on reasonable terms for themselves. They left the British with an internationally blackened eye. Nobody remembered the Burmese. Everybody remembered the Boers. The Boers used every means they could think of. They did everything they could. They even captured Winston Churchill. These examples may show that the military role of propaganda and related operations is not as obscure or intangible as it may have seemed. They cannot be considered history but must be regarded as a plea for the writing of history. More recent experience is another question and involves tracing the doctrines pertaining to psychological warfare which have now become established military procedure in the modern armies. End of section 2